take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, as we continue our exposition of this gospel of our Lord. Beginning a new chapter this morning. We have another passage that is unique to the gospel of Luke. Follow along with me there as I read, beginning at verse 1 in Luke 16. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will you give? Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father God, we here gather knowing that you are good, you are faithful, that you supply all of your riches and glory to those who are yours in Christ Jesus. As we come again to this, this your word, Lord, lead us by your spirit. Help us to see, Lord, even in how you teach about resources and money help us to see and behold and understand who we are in Christ what we have been given in Christ and how we are to use all for the glory of Christ lead us in your truth God in Jesus name we pray amen you will notice that the title of my sermon is your money or your life And this is something that we would expect to hear at gunpoint, right? Somebody was robbing us. They would say, your money or your life. But that title does represent, it does summarize a very clear choice. Throughout human history, there are two things, there are two things that sinful people continually elevate to a place of an idol in their life, and that is sex and money. In the text we are in this morning, the subject is money. 
And the Bible does warn us over and over again of the sin of idolizing wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If we do not manage money wisely and keep it in its proper place in our hearts, we could very well be putting our spiritual lives in jeopardy. That's the message of the text. As I've already noted, the parable of the unjust steward is another parable that is unique to the gospel of Luke. And at first reading, it represents a lot of challenges to us because Jesus almost seems to commend dishonest behavior. But what we will see upon further study is that Jesus is actually commending the wise use of resources, as well as warning us against the idolatry of money. So let's walk through this text. My first point as we walk through this text is this. We are to take resolute action in a crisis. We are to take resolute action in a crisis. As Jesus here starts another parable, he's drawing again from common experience. Just like today, rich people in the time of Christ would often employ many others to help them in their businesses or to help them with their farms, to help them manage their resources. This particular rich man had hired a manager who was effectively his financial administrator. This man would manage the books, so to say, which means that he would keep track of what was bought, sold, or traded from his, from his, uh, his employer's farm. He would keep and maintain a list of what his employer owed other people, and he would maintain the list and the invoices of what other people owed them. Well, in this parable, it is brought to the attention of the master of the rich man that this manager is wasteful. He is not yet described as being dishonest. He's just a poor manager of the rich man's resources. And so the man says to him, turn in your accounts. You're no longer going to be my manager. Well, this manager rightly starts to scramble to figure out what he's going to do to take care of himself. He realizes he's not a brawny man. He's not fit for manual labor and digging in the fields. And on the other end, he's too ashamed to become a beggar. And so he comes to a decision that moves him from merely being an incompetent manager to being a dishonest, incompetent manager. He decides to ingratiate himself to his master's debtors by changing their billing invoices and lowering what they owe. And so we see in verse 5, he starts calling them in. The first guy owes 100 measures of oil. That's roughly eight to 900 gallons of oil. And he tells him to adjust his bill from 100 to 50. He cuts it in half. Then the next guy, he owes 100 measures of wheat. 100 measures of wheat is roughly 1,000 bushels. So he tells him to adjust his bill from 100 down to 80. And just from these two debtors alone, the manager has already written off an amount that is more than a year's wage by the average income at this time. As for the debtors, this man was the representative of the rich man as far as they knew. They didn't know any different. They didn't know he was in the process of being fired. So they were just happy to have their debt reduced. If this manager had done what he did here in our day and age, the Securities and Exchange Commission would convict him for financial fraud and haul him off to jail. 
And truth be told, that's what's so surprising about what happens in the next verse. Anyone hearing this parable is automatically thinking to themselves, this guy is a cheat. This rich man is going to come and he's going to have this guy up on charges and beaten. But look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What? What did this man say? This guy just cost him the equivalent of an entire year's wage, and he's going to commend him? You're going to applaud his dishonesty? But that's where we need correction in understanding what is actually said here. Read verse 8 again carefully. The rich man is careful to note that the manager is indeed dishonest, but he's not commending his dishonesty. He's commending his shrewdness. Uh, uh, that word, Greek word there also means his prudence, his, his cleverness. In some contexts, the same words even means his wisdom. You see, the man was stealing, ma stealing money from his master to set himself up after he was fired. No, Jesus is not coming out and, and telling us that he is in favor of fraud or that it is okay to cheat people in a time of perceived need dishonesty is not the best policy. What the rich man was commending is how clever the man was in preparing for the judgment to come. You see, carnal, secular people can very, be very shrewd when it's time to start acting in their own self-interests. And that is what Jesus is drawing our attention to. The question here is, are you ready for the life to come? Are you preparing yourself for the judgment? Even lost people are more shrewd at preparing for what is coming when dealing with their own generation. What are you, as a disciple of Christ, doing to take care of your future? You see, brothers and sisters, the backdrop to all of this is the impending judgment of God. The time is coming when God will judge the world, and the basis for that judgment has already been established. People will be judged upon their trust in and allegiance to Jesus Christ. In light of that coming judgment, each of us had better be prepared to give an account before God. And as Jesus already said back in Luke 9.25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Unfortunately, many professing Christians get so focused on life here and necessities here that they fail to prepare for the judgment to come. These people can even be busy in a religious sense, but they are not prepared in their hearts to meet God. <coughs> that is why Jesus warned in Matthew 7, verses 21 and following, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven.'" but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now as we move from verse 8 to verse 9, Jesus then specifically applies this parable to money. 
He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, you probably had the same question I read the first time, first, same question I had the first time I read this. Pastor Sean, what does he mean when he refers to unrighteous wealth? Is money in and of itself unrighteous? Well, we want to be clear here that Jesus is not setting forth the idea that we should seek dishonest or unrighteous gain. We also want to understand that money in and of itself is value neutral. Money can be used for good and it can be used for bad by men. But there is no inherent morality to money. So what is the best explanation for Jesus calling this unrighteous wealth? Well, I think Jesus was looking at the Jewish system of his day and he realized that there was so much bribery, there was so much graft, there was so much abuse of money that money was associated with an unrighteous system. In other words, because injustice is so often involved in the accumulation and use of earthly possessions, Jesus is calling it unrighteous. Secondly, what did Jesus mean when he said, make friends with your money who will welcome you into eternal dwellings? Well, what Jesus is doing here is making a point based upon that previous parable of the dishonest manager. That dishonest manager made friends by dishonestly reducing their debts, hoping that he would be invited into their homes when he was out of work. Similarly, in a more righteous and holy manner, we are to prepare for the judgment by using our money righteously, helping others and storing up treasure in heaven for the glory of God. That brings us to the question, do we, brothers and sisters, use our earthly possessions in a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will have benefited and be glad to receive us? Or will we live in such a way that there will be many who will point accusing fingers at us because we neglected them or injured them through our unfaithful use of the wealth that Christ entrusted to us? When it comes down to it biblically, we're to do what is, what is represented in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And listen to verses 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ is encouraging us towards. To be a people who live our lives and manage our resources in a way that we store up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. And if we think about that, that's exactly what Christ modeled for us during the entirety of his life, isn't it? Christ never once is portrayed as a man who had any anxious thought or any obsession over income. In fact, it says that the, the Son of Man came and he did not even have a place to lay his head. As he began his itinerant ministry, he was literally dependent upon the generosity of others to supply his needs. And he trusted his Father to supply those needs through his chosen servants. Not only that, but think about this. Jesus, as he led the disciples, 
he led them to entrust the keeping of the purse to, of all people, Judas. The one man that Jesus knew would betray him and the one man who ended up pilfering out of the money bag was the very one that Jesus and the disciples entrusted the management of their resources to. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, even showed compassion and love to Judas as he was one of the twelve. Aren't we thankful for the example and the love of Christ who showed us what it was to be in this world, but not obsessed with the things of this world, not not consumed with the idea of amassing wealth in this world, but instead investing himself in that which would last for all eternity. Now, some have wrongly looked at the life of Jesus And we go back historically, particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, and said, because of the life of Jesus, it is warranted then to take a vow of poverty, that somehow by impoverishing yourself to the uttermost, you are closer to God. That's not a biblical teaching either, brothers and sisters. That's not right. There's not not a greater godliness because of your greater poverty. But what it does remind us, brothers and sisters, is to have a Godward perspective of our finances, to look to Christ as our example and understand that we are called to manage all we have for the glory of our Father in light of the fact that there is a coming judgment where we will all give an account to God. That takes me to my second point. The second admonition we see in this passage is to be faithful with what God has entrusted to be faithful with what God has entrusted. Look at verse 10 in the text. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. You know, I I have heard Christians, not here, but, but outside, I've heard Christians say things like this. If I were wealthy, if God gave me $10 million tomorrow, I would give money to missions and I would help orphans and I would give generously to my church and I would do all these amazing things for the kingdom. And you know what? As a pastor, I I certainly appreciate that sentiment. But do you know what? There is a very easy way to find out whether or not a Christian would really do this. The way to see whether or not a Christian would be faithful if they had more is to see whether or not they are being faithful with what they have now. The way to see whether or not a Christian would be faithful if they had more is to see whether or not they are being faithful with what they have now. Because that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, right? One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And brothers and sisters, this applies to to all of life. How faithful are we in the little things? How faithful are we in using our time when no one but God can see us? How faithful are we in completing the work that is entrusted to us each day? How faithful are we at loving and relating to our loved ones in our day-to-day interactions with our spouse, with our children, showing them the love of Christ? How faithful are we at loving Jesus and battling the sins and temptations that face us hour after hour? How faithful 
are we at honoring God with our finances right now? You see, brothers and sisters, good character is built by all the little daily choices we make to keep our commitments, to maintain our integrity, to be generous with what the Lord has given. And you know what? Just as good character is built through the little things, bad character is also built through the little things through the little ways that we cut corners, through the little ways that we neglect our commitments, through the little ways that we compromise our integrity. And so the question that the text asks of us is simply this. Are you faithful? Are you faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to you? Jesus then applies this directly back to wealth in verse 11. He says, if you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So if you have not been faithful in what is temporary, what is the fleeting wealth of this world, who would entrust to you true riches? And the implied question here is that that if you are not faithful with what you have here, why would God ever trust to you the true riches of the kingdom? Jesus then reinforces this with verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This verse also brings us back to a critical biblical truth. What we have is not our own. As Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so as God's redeemed image bearers, we are not owners, we are stewards of what he owns. Our house, our clothes, our cars, our furniture, our food, ourselves, everything that we personally own, all of it belongs to him. And so that ultimate reality requires us to reframe the question. The key question is not what are you doing with what you have. The key question is this. Are you being faithful with the possessions of God that have been entrusted to your care? That's the question. Are we living as if everything we have comes from God and is to be used for his glory? You know, I like to think of it this way. Imagine that you have a seven-year-old daughter, and, and Christmas time has come, right? And your seven-year-old daughter is caught up in the joy of, of being wanting to be able to participate in the giving of gifts in the name of Christ. And so your seven-year-old daughter, whom you supply everything to, you supply the roof over her head, the, the clothes on her back, the toys in her toy box, you supply the bed she sleeps on, the food she eats, everything. Your seven-year-old daughter also comes to you and asks, says, Mom and Dad, can I have some money so that I can go Christmas shopping so that I can buy gifts for you? Well, brothers and sisters, this, this is a good thing, right? That's a good metaphor for us to remember. Everything is entrusted to us by our Heavenly Father to use for His glory. If He doesn't supply it, We would not have it. And it has all been entrusted to us by God so that he will be glorified in the supply of our needs, so that he will be glorified in our enjoyment of his creation, and so that he will be glorified in our support of his kingdom work. So we're back to the key question. Are we being faithful with what is his? 
The truth is, brothers and sisters, as I preach this point, many of us feel the pressing burden of the law upon us. We feel that burden of the law as we weigh whether or not we have been faithful with our finances and in all these ancillary areas. We want to understand that God's law holds an important role in the Christian's life. God's law is meant to convict us of sin. But the law of God also reveals the way of love, the path of obedience. And the good news is that we have a Savior who is faithful in every way. Even when we are not faithful, Christ is faithful. That's what 2 Timothy 2.13 says. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. If you have been a poor or even a dishonest steward of God's possessions, then turn to Him and repent. And know the wonder of His compassion and forgiveness and cleansing. If you're struggling in this area of your life, then go to the Savior who is your burden bearer, who gives you mercy and grace and patience in your time of struggle and need. Or if you were worried this morning that practicing biblical faithfulness with your finances is going to break you, then I want you to understand Christ would welcome you to come before Him and hear again and trust in His promises. What are his promises in the realm of finances? Well, we see this in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 through 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you hear the core of that promise, brothers and sisters? He says, you, when you look to Him, when you trust in Him, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. At the end of the day, God is not seeking our money. God is seeking our godliness our conformity to His character, His person, His priorities above all else. You see, if we are spiritually centered upon and in Jesus Christ, then faithful stewardship cannot help but follow. You know, Pastor Billy, who was our pastor of the day today, he brought me this great quote this week from Charles Spurgeon. This quote from Spurgeon, Spurgeon says the following, he says, but still, godliness hath the promise of the life that now is as well as that which is to come. And he who is wise enough to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness should also be wise enough to use aright the other things which God is pleased to add unto him. If God is the one who by the power of his Holy Spirit causes us to seek him first, that same God, that same Spirit is going to lead us to rightly use our resources for His glory now. And that takes me really to the culminating verse of this passage. Verse 13, and my final point, serve your Lord with singular devotion. 
Serve your Lord with singular devotion. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, this one verse serves as the summary for this entire section of Christ's teaching. The point-blank fact of the matter is that no servant can serve two masters. And, and we want to remember the term for servant that is used here is the word doulos. It is the word slave. You see, slavery is a very different kind of employment. You know, a person today, we could have two employers. We could work hard and satisfy the, re the weekly requirements of two different jobs. But that is not how things work when you're a slave by definition, one who owns a slave has total control over that slave. The slave is totally obligated to serve his master. Not a moment of his time or an ounce of his effort belongs to anyone but his master. And it is that metaphor that Jesus is drawing upon here. No slave can have two masters. Having a singular loyalty is an inherent requirement of a slave's existence. To have a singular devotion to one's master requires a disavowal of anything or anyone else that might demand the slave's allegiance. And so Jesus is here drawing for us a very clear line in the sand. To love money, to have worldly wealth as an idol, is the equivalent of hating God. You cannot claim to love God while at the same time manifesting a materialistic love that is opposed to God. Conversely, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will, love, you will love Him with what He has entrusted to you. Okay, You will despise materialism, you will despise the love of money, and you will express your love for God even in what He has entrusted to your care. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. We're back to this reality, brothers and sisters, where we need to remember, we need to understand <coughs> that God's judgment is coming upon those who idolize wealth. James chapter 5, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, as we hear verses like this, we're all looking at, our, we're looking at ourselves and we're thinking to ourselves, you know what? Pastor Sean, I'm, I'm not driven by an evil greed. I, I, I don't idolize money. I'm not that materialistic. I just like to have a few nice things. I sure hope all the other people around me are listening to this because I know they need it, but, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. And you know what? By God's grace, I hope you are. If you are here today and by God's grace, you have been faithful with God, that what God has entrusted to you, I hope that you will hear nothing but encouragement from me to continue to walk in that path of faithful obedience. But at the same time, I would also say that sin does creep in quietly and it can become rooted in our hearts and lives in very subtle ways. And so I would just maybe invite you to ask yourself these questions with me. 
on a day-to-day basis, do you find yourself desiring and cherishing the comforts of money and possessions more than the person of Christ? Does your sense of security derive from the level of your bank account or your possessions or your retirement account more than from the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? When you look at your life and take stock of what you have already acquired, are you discontent because you want more things and more comforts? Or are you content with what you have and your greatest desire is more of Christ? Are you a constant shopper, always looking towards and planning your next purchase? Or are you more concerned with drawing near to the heart of Christ? Finally, when it comes to obeying God with your stewardship, do you faithfully give God your first fruits and then live off the rest? Or do you give the God of all glory your leftovers, if anything at all? You know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones told a story. He told a story of a farmer who many years ago happily reported to his wife one day that his prized cow had given birth to two calves, one red calf and one white calf. And on that day of their birth, the farmer said, you know, I have been led of the Lord to dedicate one of the calves to the Lord. We'll raise them both together and when the time comes to sell them, we'll keep the money from one calf and we'll give the money from the other to the Lord. At that point, his wife asked him which calf he was going to dedicate to the Lord. And the farmer said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's the red one or the white one because I'm going to take special care of both of them alike. Well, several months later, the farmer came into his house very saddened. His wife asked him what was wrong. And he said, I have bad news. The Lord's calf is dead. Brothers and sisters, sadly, that is how often it works with us in the heat of the moment. When we are forced to make a choice between giving to God and giving to ourselves, it's the Lord's portion that is forfeit. And that is departing from the greater master to serve the lesser master. That is treasuring up things on earth. And that's why we must strive in the Spirit's strength to guard ourselves, to keep ourselves focused on God's reward and serve Christ with a singular devotion. To serve Him as the greatest treasure of our lives because He is. Do you ever stop to think of that? When, you think of, when we think of all the things that God has, all the things that God has in store for us, even when we think of heaven and it descri- you know, and how it's described in the book of Revelation with these great jeweled gates, you know, the, the city of God, and, and, how, and we think in terms of streets of gold and all the things, do you understand that all of that opulence is nothing compared to Jesus Christ himself? God is the gospel the good news. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure of heaven. He is the sum of all the riches that that heaven has to offer. And brothers and sisters, it is Christ that is given to us, that is ours. No part of Him, no aspect of His glory, no smidgen of His grace is held back from all who trust in Him. 
That's why in Hebrews 13, 5, the, the preacher in Hebrews said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why can we be content? Why can we not give ourselves over to the idol of wealth? Because we have Jesus. And Jesus has said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. You have that which is most valuable in all the universe given to you in the person of the Son. And because we have already been given that greatest gift, because the lavishness of His grace has already been heaped upon us, we can now keep our finances, our possessions in a right view and use them in a right way. We can understand that the greatest pursuit of this life is not more comfort, is not greater retirement accounts, is not storing up for a time when we won't have to work and we can just live and do all the other things that we want to do now, but work precludes them. The greatest glories of this life, brothers and sisters, are not in this life. They are awaiting us at the right hand of our Savior forevermore. And every day in and through Him, we are given a foretaste of those eternal realities, purely by grace. We didn't earn them. We could never merit them. These are things that have been bestowed upon us because of the love of a Savior. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When Christ is your greatest goal, when Christ is your source of contentment, when He is the first love of your life as He is meant to be, then you will see your homes, your clothes, your food, your riches, your retirement accounts. They're just things. His things that have been entrusted to you as a steward. And you can use them for His glory. And hear me, this is a great time of fear, right? This, the price of everything has gone way up. There are so many more demands of us being made now. I don't know about you, but consistently every month, I'm way over my budget for gas. We're over our budget for groceries. Everything is costing more. And it's easy for us to take the mentality that was back in that illustration. Oh, it's the Lord's calf that's dead. But brothers and sisters, are you fearing the world or are you being faithful to the Savior? Are you trusting in the things of this world? Are you trusting in the Christ that has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? May we trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word. Your Word that literally renews and transforms our minds and our hearts by the power of Your Spirit. We confess to You, Lord, that we, we can live fearfully in fear of, of our politicians, in fear of, of the financial state of our, our nation, in fear of what another economic downturn might mean, in fear of losing that which we have amassed in this life. But through all these things, Lord, you remind us what is true, what is lasting, what is eternal. And it is not the treasure here, 
what is eternal is the treasure of Christ. So help us as your people to treasure Christ. To love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us for the glory of your name. And Lord, I pray again even now that if there's someone here in the sound of my voice that perhaps through this morning's sermon has realized they don't have Christ. They do not know the riches of salvation. They are still in their trespasses and sins and headed for Christless eternity and torment. I pray that you, by your grace, even this day, would draw them to yourself. That you would open their eyes and change their heart in the regeneration of your Holy Spirit, that they might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do your will, your work among us, Lord, conforming us to Christ our King. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.